Welcome to this moment in democracy. I'm Saladin Ambar. This episode was recorded on July 6, 2023. In a contentious decision last week, the Supreme Court effectively ended affirmative action in universities. What is the impact on higher education and the broader repercussions on American society as a whole? Joining us today to discuss this is the former vice dean and current professor of law at Rutgers Law School and diversity consultant, Stacy Hawkins. Professor Hawkins, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I realize you've been undoubtedly uh, going about the country, whether by foot or virtually, to talk about this decision. Could you just summarize for our audience what the court ruled and if there is any uh, wiggle room, if you will, for universities to continue to consider diversity uh, going forward in their admissions? Sure. So this was the fifth time in um, 20 years that the Supreme Court has had occasion to review the um, admissions policies at colleges and universities. Um, And so the first time they did so was back in 1978. Um, And there was really since that time an understanding that um, colleges and universities were allowed to consider race as one of many factors um, when making admissions decisions um, in the interest of trying to achieve student body diversity, um, so long as they did so in kind of a flexible and individualized way. That was really the kind of understanding, although there was not a formal holding on behalf of a majority of the court in that 1978 case. Fast forward to 2003, and a majority of the Supreme Court, a bare majority, but a majority, five to four, um, really adopted that understanding from 1978 and formally made it the rule of law that at least under our constitutional guarantee of equal protection, public colleges and universities were able to continue to use race um, in their admissions uh, uh, practices as long as it was one of many factors um, and they were doing so in the interest of achieving student body diversity. Um, Again, since 2003, um, that holding has been affirmed repeatedly by the court in a number of cases. In fact, in 2003, there were two cases, um, uh, both of which were against the University of Michigan. Um, but again, the court affirmed that kind of understanding of how race may be used um, in 2013. And then again, in 2016, in cases involving the University of Texas, the Supreme Court once again affirmed that understanding of colleges and universities' ability to use race in a very narrow and circumscribed way in the interest of pursuing the educational benefits that flow from student body diversity. Um, But since really the 2003 decision, um, opponents of race conscious admissions have been uh, persistently challenging those um, admissions plans and trying to get the court to either kind of restrict their holding in those past cases or even outright overturn their holding. And they finally succeeded. And so in this set of companion cases involving um, Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, the Supreme Court finally said that 
colleges and universities may no longer consider race even as one of many factors in their admissions uh, 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 practices. Um, instead, they have to use what the court calls race neutral means, even if they are pursuing an interest in student body diversity. And quite frankly, in this case, this kind of set of cases, um, the court even kind of impugned colleges and universities' interest in even trying to achieve student body diversity. But um, notwithstanding that, they really did focus on this idea that um, whatever the ends that colleges and universities were trying to pursue uh, by using race in, in admissions, they are no longer permitted to do so. And to your point about whether or not there is any kind of residual ability to use race, um, the court did say that um, they can consider race if it is brought up by the student in the application as relevant to their own identity and their own experience, but colleges and the universities may not use the mere fact of a student's race, which is provided through a kind of checkbox self-identification mechanism um, in their admissions decision. So they cannot consider the mere fact of a student's race, but if a student brings up their own racial identity as part of explaining who they are in their admissions um, application, then colleges and universities can consider that information. Thank you. That's a, a very concise and, and I, I think very eloquent uh, summarization, so I really appreciate it. What does this mean for Rutgers University and other public universities like Rutgers, particularly one uh, as diverse uh, perhaps the most diverse, uh, at least by some accounts, um, of colleges and universities, which Rutgers has has been named in the past. Uh, what does that mean for places like Rutgers, but also private universities, say folks down the road at Princeton or other um, private universities? Uh, what does that mean for those kinds of places? So it it really does depend on how a college or university currently conducts its admissions um, practices. So the association, the National Association of College Admission Counseling did a survey um, most recently, I think in 2019, and found that um, nearly 60% of colleges and universities report that that race plays no part in their admissions decisions currently, right? So even before the Supreme Court issued this opinion. And the reason is that the vast majority of colleges and universities uh, in the United States are not highly selective. Um, the majority of, of colleges and universities admit most of their applicants. Um, in fact, the average admissions rate in the country is about 60 something percent, which is, I believe, the admissions rate at Rutgers, which means that if race figures in at all, it figures in much less prominently than it does for highly selective schools like Harvard University, which only admits about 3% of its class, or even a school like UNC, which admits closer to like 10 to 12% of its um, applicants. And so it really just depends on whether or not you are one of those schools that has a pretty high admission rate and does not really use race as one of the factors in um, selecting students for admission, or if you are one of the more selective colleges and universities that really does have to winnow down a huge um, applicant pool to a very small number of, uh, of admitted students. Thank you. And, and you mentioned in your earlier remarks that uh, equal protection under the law was uh, sort of the linchpin um, behind the court's uh, opinion. Uh, can you share how the 14th Amendment was used in this decision? Uh, and I guess I use the term use um, somewhat advisedly. Um, can you share with us how the 14th Amendment came into play uh, in this decision? 
Sure. And it's worth noting that the 14th Amendment was deployed very differently by the majority than it was by the dissent. Uh, They had two very different kind of um, legal and historical understandings of the context, the kind of impetus and the meaning of the Equal Protection Clause. And so on behalf of the majority, um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts really um, emphasized the fact that um, the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause was designed to enshrine a colorblind view of the law um, into our Constitution. That is, it was supposed to guarantee that the law could not make any distinctions whatsoever on the basis of race. Um, And interestingly enough, his chief kind of um, source for that claim was Um, a very famous dissent um, in a very famous case back in um, uh, uh, 1896, where in Plessy v. Ferguson, the court actually upheld um, Jim Crow segregation, um, finding that it did not offend equal protection for mostly Southern states to pass laws um, requiring racial segregation in public life um, because they said as long as there were equal right um, uh, uh, opportunities for uh, black and white persons to in this particular instance ride on the railway or to go to schools right uh, different racially segregated schools but schools nonetheless um, that was not um, uh, prohibited under the equal protection clause but Justice Harlan um, John Marshall Harlan dissented in that case, and he famously wrote the words that our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Again, he was in the dissent in that case. That is not what a majority of the court held. And in fact, we know that Jim Crow and racial segregation prevailed um, for another half century or more until the 1950s when in Brown v. Board of Education, the court first struck down uh, racial segregation in uh, public education. And then after the civil rights kind of movement began to not only um, uh, decide cases, but also pass legislation prohibiting racial discrimination in public life. And so it really is a bit ahistorical um, and also um, uh, uh, not legally accurate to say that the Constitution and the 14th Amendment has been colorblind. But that's what Chief Justice Roberts and the majority said, that that really the whole design of our Constitution and the 14th Amendment in particular um, was supposed to be about ensuring that we can make no distinctions between persons on the basis of race, Uh, notwithstanding the fact that the 14th Amendment is part of the Reconstruction Amendments that were designed precisely to elevate the status of the former enslaved persons, right, to equal status with white citizens and to do so in a way that acknowledges their past racial mistreatment of Black um, enslaved persons. Um, Justices Sotomayor and and, and Justice um, Jackson, who wrote in the dissent, acknowledge that history and acknowledge the fact that this colorblind vision of um, our Equal Protection Clause had actually never been the majority view of the court um, in its um, original interpretations of the 14th Amendment and was inconsistent with really the lived history and experience um, in the country where, again, we lived under Jim Crow racial segregation for uh, uh, nearly 100 years after uh, the 14th Amendment and um, emancipation. And then we continued to engage in race-based remediation, right, through affirmative action and other means um, even after that. And so we have never adopted a colorblind um, uh, view of our constitutional guarantee of equal protection, yet that's what the court imposes on us today. Another issue that 
arose uh, in thinking about and arguing over the nature of the decision, the arguments used, was this question of standing. And I don't know how many of our uh, listeners are uh, astute followers uh, of the court or, or, or the law. I suspect many are, <laughs> given, given who our audience is. But could you share with us uh, how this controversy over standing and whether or not the plaintiff or plaintiffs had standing to actually um, appear before the court with this uh, uh, accusation, if you will, against Harvard, uh, how that came about and what is the controversy? Is it um, worth worth uh, digging into at all? Sure. So standing is a procedural concept that says before a court can decide a legal matter, the parties before the court have to be the right parties to bring the issue. Um, in order to be the right parties, they have to essentially have been injured by something that the other party has done, the party that they are suing. Um, and that um, kind of dispute over the harm has to still be live. That is, the defendant could not have made the plaintiff whole in some way. And there must be some remedy that the court can provide to the party uh, uh, for the injury they have suffered. That's basically the idea of standing. Um, and if those three things are met, that the person has been injured, that the injury remains a live controversy, and that um, uh, the court can grant them relief, then they have standing to sue. Um, and so in, in a lot of these cases uh, um, about college university admissions in the past, one of the challenges to standing has been that um, it really is um, the case that because litigation takes a very long time, oftentimes the the litigants are denied admission to a college, they sue, but by the time the case gets to the court, they've actually graduated from some other institution, right? Which is what we call a moot question, right? There is no ability for the courts to give them the relief they seek, which is admission to their college or university of choice. However, the court resolved that issue in the very first case um, that they heard around this issue, basically saying there are certain types of injuries that will continue to occur, but they will evade judicial review because they will always take right um, a longer time to litigate than the injury persists. Um, and so the court said that that represents a special class of cases. And so these cases have always been heard by the court. The other particular standing challenge in this set of cases is that for the first time, these cases were not litigated on behalf of an individual plaintiff who was denied admission to either of these colleges. Instead, they were filed on behalf of an organization, quite frankly, an activist opponent to affirmative action, Edward Bloom, who created this organization, Students for Fair Admission, for the very purpose of challenging these admissions plans and actually sought plaintiffs after the fact, uh, right? And so they really did create these organizations for as a vehicle for litigating challenges and then, you know, identified uh, potential plaintiffs. And so these were unique in that they were organizational plaintiffs. And so organizational plaintiffs have to represent individuals who have the same kind of standing interest that uh, an individual litigant would have. And at the time these cases were filed, it was not clear that the organization Students for Fair Admission was actually comprised of applicants to Harvard and or UNC who had been denied admission. 
But it seems that they really remedied that defect over the course of the litigation. And so uh, by the time even they got to trial in these cases, the trial courts had found that um, that they did really have standing. And so it really was a non-issue. It did not remain a major issue um, on appeal. And so, of course, the Supreme Court quickly dispensed with the standing concerns. Understood. Thank you for that for that response. Uh, we we all know that no community is a monolith, and yet there have been lots of arguments put forth by and perhaps um, uh, on the behalf of Asian Americans uh, who have been seen as or or have uh, it's been argued that they've been uh, negatively impacted by affirmative action policies over the years. What do you say to groups like the Chinese American Citizens Alliance? of Greater New York, for example, who say they've been, um, uh, you know, uh, arguing on the behalf of those who've been, uh, quote unquote, victimized by these affirmative action uh, policies in the past and are welcoming the court's um, recent decision. So it's so interesting because what I would say and what I hope people who feel aggrieved by these uh, race conscious admissions policies understand is that SFFA's own evidence submitted at trial, the arguments that they made demonstrate that the harm to Asian American applicants in the admissions process, at least at Harvard, because they were largely the kind of um, party and interest in the Harvard litigation, um, the harm to Asians in the admissions process at Harvard comes not from race conscious admissions that might benefit Black and Hispanic applicants. Instead, the harm to Asian American applicants at Harvard comes from the preferences that are afforded to largely white applicants who are athletic recruits, who are legacy admits, who are donor admits, or who are on the deans or, or who are um, uh, children of uh, faculty and staff. Um, and that was called the ADLC um, uh, list at Harvard. And it is that set of preferences that statistically disadvantages Asian Americans, not race conscious admissions. And so by their own evidence, they were attacking the wrong target in terms of what's hurting Asian Americans. Um, and so I, I think that it's just a false narrative that's gotten perpetuated, notwithstanding the very clear evidence at trial and on the record um, that eliminating race conscious admissions is going to do nothing to minimize the harms that Asian American applicants suffer from the preferences that are given to those other applicants, none of which are going to be affected by the um, prohibition on race conscious admissions. I suppose so much of this conversation and indeed um, this uh, this ruling comes down to perceptions. You know, I, like you, I teach um, at Rutgers University. Um, and I think most most of people around the country who know anything of Rutgers would assume it's a liberal, progressive slash very diverse institution if they know anything at all about it. Yet, I, you know, I teach an American presidency course that might have 40 or 50 students and there might be one African-American in the class, maybe two at times. And so that's, you know, but per, the perception of how affirmative action is benefiting uh, black students is is always an intriguing one, to say the least. What do you suppose will happen to African-American applicants uh, going forward, particularly at uh, elite institutions, the Harvards and so forth? So that's a great point, Dean. And the reality is that people 
assail race conscious admissions policies, but the fact remains African-American students remain the most underrepresented racial and ethnic demographic in higher education. Um, and Hispanic applicants um, second, Ac actually Native Americans, I, I think, which tend not to be counted because they um, appear in numbers so small that they're not statistically um, uh, reliable. But um, African-American and um, Hispanic students are the only population that are actually underrepresented in higher education. And so notwithstanding, uh, race conscious admissions, they are still not being admitted in equal numbers to their uh, white and Asian counterparts. Um, and that picture is going to become even worse um, now that certain colleges and universities are going to be prohibited from using race in admissions to reach even that minimal threshold of underrepresentation, right? They're going to be even more grossly underrepresented um, in higher education, as you say, particularly at elite colleges and universities, because, you know, what we know is that um, this is really not about, you know, how many people are going to go to school. It's not likely to impact um, how many students go to school. It will impact where those students go to school. Um, and again, we understand that there are lots of advantages that um, attach to um matriculation at elite colleges and universities. Um, they often have higher graduation rates. And so I do a presentation um, around race conscious admissions that shows one of the reasons why it's so incredibly important to have the ability for um, select colleges and universities to, to use these race conscious admissions is because if Black and Hispanic students are not able to attend those schools, their chances of graduating with a bachelor's degree dramatically decline because they get pushed down to lower rank institutions that have lower graduation rates. And again, graduation rates are also variable by race and ethnicity. So Blacks and Hispanics already have lower graduation rates. You push them down to less selective institutions where their graduation rates are even um, less um, uh, um likely, again, it just decimates their ability to uh, obtain a bachelor's degree. And so um, if we're talking about creating an educated class of, of, of diverse students who are going to be able to satisfy our needs in the future workforce, our needs for future leaders of our democracy, this really is going to impair our ability to create that kind of robust, diverse pool of future leaders and you know, future uh, professionals. I don't know if um, President Holloway has asked for your opinion or uh, anyone else in admissions or elsewhere has asked your, for your opinion about how the university might move forward in what we can now call, at least for the time being, a post-affirmative action world. What can Rutgers University do? If you were asked uh, uh, by the president uh, or of any institution for that matter, what can be done? But specifically, let's let's talk about Rutgers uh, or like institutions, uh, public universities uh, across the country um, that serve their states and serve them well. What can those kinds of institutions do to ensure that they will continue to be uh, robust institutions with great diversity and great students, particularly from uh, the Black community that is as you just pointed out, so often underrepresented at these kinds of institutions. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that we know has worked in um, places that have demographic diversity, like 
Texas, like Florida, like California, are percentage plans. Um, those are one of the alternatives that are race neutral that was proposed by the challengers in these cases. And while it is not entirely within the um, power of uh, university presidents to do that, it requires legislative action, you can certainly engage in advocacy um, to that end. And particularly for flagship schools like Rutgers University, that that is probably the most selective school in the um, state and that might be most impacted by this prohibition on the use of race in admissions, ensuring that we are giving the best and the brightest students um, of every racial and ethnic background across the state of New Jersey an opportunity for admission to our flagship university, I think is, um, uh, is one alternative. Um, the other thing that we know really works and that is not prohibited um, by the Supreme Court's decision is engaging in outreach, cultivating a really strong pipeline of future applicants by working with and developing programs in targeted high schools where significant numbers of um, underrepresented minority students um, attend school. Um, that is going to be one of the key things that you know we want to do, make those kinds of investments in the pipeline to um, uh, higher education in our state. Um, and, and the final thing is really look at other considerations like socioeconomic diversity, diversity and other things that might be good ways of replacing the kinds of racial and ethnic diversity that are going to be lost through um, the, the school's inability to directly consider race and ethnicity in admissions. Well, yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting. You mentioned uh, those those percentage plans. It's been uh, a minute since I've heard or read about those 10% plans that Florida and Texas had. They were uh, very much a part of that 20, 2003 conversation with the the, the aforementioned cases uh, discussed. Or I guess it was Bretter and, and Bollinger or Greta, Greta versus Gratz. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, 20 years ago, that those 10% plans or percentage plans were, were quite um, frequently invoked. So that's something to think about. I hadn't thought about that in some time. Listen, I, you know, I talk to students as you do, uh, all kinds of students, certainly black students uh, uh, have expressed uh, not only to me, but to many others, but certainly um, have shared their frustrations with, you know, American society, frankly, writ large, let alone a university system that sometimes appears uh, unwelcoming to them. Um, I can attest that go going to a, a predominantly white institution um, uh, many years ago, uh, sort of levels of discomfort <laughs> that uh, that were quite challenging. What do you say to Black and, and Latino and other students who feel this um, decision is an affront to who they are, uh, who feel um, targeted um, by this decision in a world where they already feel targeted, frankly? What do you say to them? What I would say to them is that the Supreme Court, or at least those six members of the Supreme Court, don't speak for the majority of higher education. I think that if you look at um, the defenses on behalf of Harvard and UNC, if you look at the amicus briefs that were filed by countless colleges and university presidents, um, if you look at uh, briefs that were filed on behalf of student organizations and students themselves, I think overwhelmingly, um, the population um, has spoken about the commitment that they have to the ideals of diversity in higher education. And I think that Justice Sotomayor and her dissent implored colleges and universities at the end of her opinion um, to not be dissuaded in their pursuit of student body diversity by the majority opinion. Yes, they're um, 
their efforts are going to be made more challenging. Um, yes, they are going to likely, you know, um, suffer some immediate losses, but I think that that's hopefully only going to be cause for them to double down um, and, and to really uh, get creative and, and to really figure out um, alternative ways that they can continue to ensure that their campuses are reflective of the student body diversity that not only right their admitted students want, but that employers are looking for, right, uh, from the schools that they recruit from. And quite frankly, um, as a public institution of higher education, that our democracy so sorely needs, right, in terms of cultivating the next set of leaders for our pluralistic society. Um, and so I would say um, that um, don't be discouraged because those six justices do not speak for all Americans. They don't speak for all of higher education. And I would say, do the work when you are looking now to where you're going to apply to school, where you're going to continue to experience your uh, higher education journey, make sure you're choosing based on colleges and universities who are demonstrating their continued com commitment. Um, and there are ways that you can um, uh, uh, identify schools that are doing that. Already, we've had a number of school presidents, uh, including our own, right, make public statements saying that they are not dissuaded, right, um, in their quest for student body diversity by the Supreme Court's opinion, that they're going to do um, everything within their power and within the bounds of the law to ensure that they continue to recruit and enroll a diverse class of students. And that's what I think students should be encouraged by. One final question. You've been so gracious with your time. Thank you again. We're talking with and have been speaking with uh, Professor Stacey Hawkins. It's been, it's been really marvelous having you um, break this down for our audience. One final question. Um, in the context of our multiracial democracy, what does this court decision mean for the country? So again, I, I could be discouraged by the opinions of the majority and those of the concurrence. But what I choose to do is to be um, bolstered by, to be encouraged by the words of Justices um, Sotomayor and Justice Kagan in dissent not Justice Kagan, I'm sorry, Justice Jackson in dissent, um, because again, they recognize that the court cannot simply will its way out of our racial problems in this society. Um, they cannot impose colorblindness by fiat. We are not a colorblind society. As much as we might wish we were, or some of us might wish we were, we are not. We are not going to ever be likely a colorblind society. As, as um, Derek Bell famously said, right, the kind of permanence of race in this country is something that we will all continue to wrestle with. And I am encouraged um, by the fact that there are good people who are continuing to take up the cause for racial equality, notwithstanding the court's attempt to thwart it at every turn. Um, and so, again, it's just like Dobbs last term. You know, we could have taken a fatalist view of reproductive rights, but there were so many activists who came out and who said, we are not going to be deterred. We know what this country stands for. We know what we believe in. And quite frankly, what the Supreme Court did in Dobbs and what the Supreme Court did in the um, Harvard and UNC cases is counter-majoritarian. Those opinions are against the weight of public opinion. And I believe in the American people. And I believe that the American people's preferences will prevail 
both with respect to reproductive rights and with respect to racial equality in this country. And we're not going to let six justices of the Supreme Court stop us from continuing to pursue the vision of racial equality in these United States. Well, I I will have to say that that empowering and dare I say affirming message is one that uh, we will have to, um, and I think rather gladly, end this wonderful conversation on. Professor Stacy Hawkins, thank you so much for joining us today uh, on this moment in democracy. It's been a real pleasure uh, listening to your insights. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Today's podcast has been brought to you by the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Eagleton is a nonpartisan research unit of Rutgers University, New Brunswick. This moment in democracy was made possible in part by the generosity of Gerald and Kiko Harvey and Eagleton's many supporters. To support Eagleton's work or sign up for its newsletter, click the links in the description. To learn more about the Institute, visit eagleton.rutgers.edu and follow Eagleton on social media. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us.